Rising up, back to the streets. July was hotter than Stevie Wonder working beats. The Warriors are back, trying to compete against the Bears. Are they starting to retreat? Because that was a rally, Sally. Go tell your Uncle Pete. Tell your mother, tell your brother, get up on your feet. Sentiment has shifted, stocks are getting lifted. The logic may be twisted, and these gains have been assisted by that notion that all that inflation commotion may have peaked last month. It may be just a hunch, but the Fed says no recession yet, and maybe not at all. With employment this strong, who cares when GDP falls for two quarters in a row, and the economy is moving slow, and consumer sentiment's in the tank, cash is earning nothing in the bank, and earnings are better than expected? Bad news getting rejected like Matumbo swatting shots out of the sky. We got stocks making 20-day highs. Is this the dawn of a new cycle, the beginning of something fresh? It's time to roll down our windows. We're on the Investopedia Express. Make no mistake about it, U.S. stocks found their footing last week, finishing up a July to remember. The Dow popped nearly 3%, while the S&P added 4.3% last week, and the Nasdaq Composite rose 4.7% for the month. The S&P 500 rallied 9.1%, and the Nasdaq a popping 12.3% gain, one of the strongest months in history for the index. If that was a bear trap, it wasn't very convincing, as 9 out of the 11 sectors in the S&P 500 all posted gains. If you want to get technical about it, the major indexes all found support for the time being, and we're starting to see some true breath thrusts playing across the stock market. A breath thrust, my friends, is not a fencing move. It's a technical indicator that flashes when a large percentage of stocks make new short-term highs, driving their moving averages higher, with more of those stocks advancing rather than declining. Check, check, check. And when that happens, a new trend may be forming. If we look back into the history of the S&P 500, Every time we've seen a breath thrust this strong, according to our pals at All Star Charts, the market was higher 12 months later, 27 out of 28 times. Does that mean it will play out this way again this time? No, but the odds are pretty compelling. And the bad news in the economy is starting to be taken as good news in the stock market. It's one of those weird inflection points when we see markets get stretched to extremes. The preliminary estimates for second quarter GDP showed a 1.1% slowdown. Not as bad as forecast, but still a drop and the second consecutive quarterly decline in a row. That is one of the indicators of a recession which has become a hot potato issue in politics and media and everywhere else. The Fed, for its part, doesn't think we're in a recession. I do not think the U.S. is currently in a recession. Um, and the reason is there are just too many areas of the economy that are, that are performing, uh, you know, too well. And, and, of course, I would point to the labor market in, in particular. If we are actually not in a recession, it would be the first time since 1947 that two consecutive quarters of negative GDP did not occur amid a recession. There have been 11 recessions since 1947. It would also be the first recession where the U.S. unemployment rate was lower than 5%. The U.S. Central Bank raised interest rates last week by three quarters of a point, as most of us expected, but sounded a little more dovish than it has in a few months. Markets are pricing in two more rate hikes for the rest of the year, half a point in September and half a point in November, and investors seem to be settling into the narrative, putting money back to work in stocks. In fact, the S&P 500 gained 3.9% on the day of the Fed hike and the following day. That's the best rally after a rate hike going all the way back to 1970. $5.6 billion flowed back into equities last week, the biggest inflows in six weeks, according to B of A Research. And retail investors got busy at the end of the month too, getting back to buying up those tech stocks we held so dearly. According to Vanda Research, purchases by individual investors of a basket of popular tech stocks, which include the fangs in late July, hit the highest level since at least 2014. 
Many of those old favorites reported quarterly results last week, and while they are all showing signs of slowing down, the outlooks weren't too bad, especially for Apple, Amazon, and Microsoft. They all reported their slowest revenue growth since 2020, yet investors pounced on those stocks after their earnings releases crossed the wires. Remember, Microsoft and Apple and Amazon are among the most widely held stocks on the planet. Meanwhile, the inflation narrative has been changing. Even though the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index hit another 40-year high in June at 6.8%, the PCE, which is the Fed's preferred inflation gauge, may have topped out given the cooldown in gas prices. The national average for a gallon of gas, according to AAA, is $4.22 per gallon. That's down from $4.85 a month ago. The core PCE index, which strips out volatile food and energy prices, increased 4.8% from June of 2021. Is it that the Fed's interest rate hikes are working? Or are prices dropping as the drumbeat around a possible global recession get louder? It's probably a little of both. If you're looking for a potential historical comparison, you got to go all the way back to 1982. That's when Fed Chair Paul Volcker was jacking up interest rates aggressively to chop down double-digit inflation here in the U.S. Stocks were in a tailspin and languished in a bear market for 36 months. But by August of 1982, the rate hikes were working, and Volcker's Fed was nearly done with the hikes. Stocks bottomed and then recovered all the losses from that bear market in just four months. Could that happen now? Who knows? There's still plenty of pitfalls between now and the end of the year. We're only halfway through this earnings season, and while the results have been better than expected, they always are, there could be more spoilers up ahead. And while the labor market has been strong and consumers keep spending, both of those could see a trend reversal in the next few weeks. Have investors priced in those possibilities into stocks? We shall see. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and it'll be another busy one with the U.S. labor market in full focus and second quarter earnings season in full bloom. 148 companies of the S&P 500 will report second quarter results this week, including Activision, Blizzard, PayPal, Square, Caterpillar, BP, Uber, JetBlue, and Starbucks, just to name a few. According to FactSet, of the 56% of the companies in the S&P 500 that have reported results, 73% have beaten estimates. The big oil giants have been awash in profits given the surge in oil prices, earlier this year. We're going to be keeping a close eye on Caterpillar's results this week. It's a good proxy for the health of the global economy, given that it is subject to long lead times for its customers' orders. If demand looks strong for the rest of this year and 2023, that's a pretty good indicator that recession fears may be easing. And we're going to be watching oil prices very closely this week as well. The OPEC Plus Group is meeting to decide whether to hold oil production targets at current levels or hike output to ease supplies. It couldn't come at a more crucial time as Russia's President Vladimir Putin will be meeting with Turkey's President Erdogan later this week as Russia is cutting off gas supplies to Europe in response to Western sanctions. Europe gets 60% of its energy supplies from Russia. Back in the USA, we're going to be locked into Friday's job report for the month of July. Economists are forecasting gains of around 250,000 jobs added last month and for the unemployment rate to hold steady at 3.6%. Remember what Chair Jay Powell said, the strong labor market is telling the Fed that this is no recession. The summer winds of late July have been blowing a nice rally across U.S. equity markets, and the walls of worry that felt insurmountable in late May and June, they feel a little bit lower all of a sudden. Is the worst behind us, or is this just a spell of smooth sailing until the next set of fear factors scare investors back out of the stock market? You're going to hear a lot of market watchers and shot callers make predictions, call bottoms or false alarms over the next few weeks. That's just part of the game. But there are only a few people who I listen to very closely when they share their outlooks, and one of them is Dr. Ed Yardini. He's the founder 
co-founder, president, and chief investment officer of Yardini Research, a sell-side consulting firm that provides a wide range of investment strategies and asset allocation analysis and recommendations. He's the author of the must-read, Predicting the Markets, a professional autobiography. That's a must-read for anyone serious about investing. And he's a widely cited and followed investing expert who I've been learning from for over 20 years. When Ed Yardini talks, people listen. And we have the pleasure of welcoming Ed on board the Express this week. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. I know your research well, and you are no permable. You don't wear rose-colored glasses. You're not that type of a market watcher. But you've been saying that June 16th may have been the bear market low, and you're right given the returns over the last several weeks. And the rally we've seen since the Fed raised rates last week confirms that. What key indicators, Ed, are you looking at besides price level to confirm your suspicions? Well, I think one of the key indicators has been sentiment. Sentiment got extremely bearish. As a matter of fact, right around the bottom, we saw that the uh, investors' intelligence bull bear ratio was the lowest it's been since March 2009, which is the very depths of the great financial crisis. And surely things aren't as awful as they were back then. And there have been lots of other sentiment indicators suggesting that uh, the market was uh, grossly oversold. But I'm a fundamentalist. I'm not a technician and I'm not a contrarian all the time. But uh, I do think that the fundamentals that the market started to uh, discount was that uh, we may be getting close if we're not at a peak in inflation and that it, sh- it should moderate. And that meanwhile, for all the fears that uh, the economy was falling into a severe recession, that it's probably soft landing. It's probably a mid-cycle slowdown, if you will. And uh, I think the market can live with that. And of course, the earnings season's uh, gone reasonably well. Yeah, I want to get into some of those results and what they're telling. And folks, if you're interested in reading Ed's research, you can find it on YardiniQuickTakes.com and on Yardini.com where you have terrific charts. The R word, Ed, recession has become a political football. You'd expect that during an election year. The White House tried to redefine it last week, got a lot of backlash for that. Fed Chair Powell said, we're not in one at his FOMC press conference last Wednesday, and we might not be, or if we are, it doesn't walk, talk, and act like past recessions, even though we've had those two consecutive quarters of negative GDP, which as you know, it's an indicator, typically one of the indicators of a recession. You're an economist as well and an investor. What's your take? And you can call it a banana if you want, just like they used to do in the White House in the 70s. Yeah, I, I've been writing about calling it a banana. That was way back when, during the Jimmy Carter days, when Alfred Kahn uh, coined the uh, expression, let's call it a banana instead of a recession, because uh, people were, uh, particularly the president back then, Jimmy Carter, didn't want to talk about the possibility of a recession. And we got the same kind of scenario now where the administration has pushed back and said, we're not in a recession. I, I don't really get political about this stuff. I mean, it's uh, pretty clear to me that what we have here is a growth recession. There's no growth in the economy in the first quarter or the second quarter. For all practical purposes, it's uh, zero growth plus minus 1%. So it's not not much. There were some technical factors that depressed the, the first quarter. And uh Second quarter was a little bit more uh, of a fundamentally weak quarter. And we'll see how the second half plays out. But the reality is inflation has really eroded the purchasing power of consumers. They're spending, but barely. So we've had uh, some growth from the consumer. And we are seeing some weakness in uh, capital spending. What we definitely have is a housing recession. Um, That was the biggest contributor to the second quarter decline in uh, real GDP, and that's likely to uh, continue. Uh, The Fed has uh, been increasing interest rates uh, more aggressively uh, in the past couple of meetings. Uh, But meanwhile, the credit markets have really tightened, and we've seen the mortgage rate absolutely soar, and that really slammed the brakes 
on the on the housing market. And housing is not just housing; it's housing related uh, retail sales. And um, so, all in all, I think we just got a, a, a slowdown. It may last uh, through the end of the year. It, it may not uh, ever get rated as an official recession, but uh, we'll we'll see how the second half plays out. You also have to realize, and I know you do this, we've come out of a period unlike one we've never really experienced in this country. You slam the brakes on the economy, turn it off like a light switch, and then try to turn it back on. It takes a while, and then you have the supply chain imbalance. You have the bullwhip effect that retailers are dealing with right now. You have demand where we didn't have it. You have a lack of demand where it was before. So we've never been through this before, and the cycles are so compressed right now. You also wrote in a recent note that consumers have nothing to fear but the future, and we know consumer sentiment is already extremely extremely negative, gets worse every month due to inflation, rising rates, and the general uncertainty, Ed. But what is it about the future that they should be scared of? Or are they just scared because of what they're surrounded with and the noise around recessions that they hear every single day? Well, I think you made a very good point about how this seems to be a a business cycle on steroids and speed. So it's been a very compressed uh, business cycle. And uh, that's made everybody uh, nervous because we're not used to things changing uh, as uh, frequently uh, and uh, as potentially cataclysmically as, as people fear. So there's there's a lot of uh, issues to fear. Obviously, the uh, situation in uh, Ukraine is horrible. Uh, the uh, uh, potential for uh, Europe to fall into a very severe recession uh, this winter because uh, the shutoff of Russian gas is a very big deal. China's going through, I think in some ways, what we went through in 2008 with the property a market calamity. And then, of course, there's inflation, which, uh, you know, you don't have to go abroad to talk about it. It's it's here and, and, and now. And it's uh, it's it's been a real problem for all, uh, for, for all of us. Uh, and uh, we've seen it squeezing consumers' uh, purchasing power. So uh, I think right now the consumers is, to a large extent, depressed by inflation. They're depressed that, uh, on the one hand, they've gotten some pretty nice uh, wage increases, but when they go and spend them in the stores, they're they're concluding they're no better off than they were before the wage increase in, in real purchasing power. Uh, so that's that's an issue, and um, I think we could talk ourselves into a, a severe recession, I suppose. Uh, but you know, if we have a recession, a conventional recession, it would be um, probably the most anticipated recession of all times, which is one of the reasons why it probably isn't going to be all all that terrible because everybody's kind of already prepared for things slowing down. And so nobody's going to suddenly get surprised and find that they have to slash their business activity. So I think slowdown is uh, kind of what consumers are likely to experience. But uh, meanwhile, they're they're fearful of things getting worse. Meanwhile, we keep spending. We're really good at that. Spending, consumer spending, 70% of US GDP hasn't cracked yet, though we have seen some increases in the in uh, credit card debt levels. And, and we've seen some pullback in some discretionary areas, particularly among lower income folks. You would expect that in any economy, but especially one that's slowing down. Let's look at some of the key fundamental indicators that you and your team track and chart every day for some health indicators. And folks, you can access these for free on your strategist handbook at yourdini.com. But let's go through a couple of them that are key to you. What are you seeing? What's standing out to you the most in terms of, of where we are in terms of PE ratios and revenue per share and some of these other metrics? Well, in terms of the macroeconomic fundamentals, before we turn to the stock market fundamentals, clearly uh, the consumer, as you said, is extremely important. And so I am watching uh, inflation-adjusted uh, personal income. I'm watching inflation-adjusted consumption. I'm watching the distribution of consumption, what are they spending on? Well, they've cut back on spending on durable goods. As you said, we've 
had an extraordinary uh, period here with the pandemic and uh, they're coming out of the lockdown recession. People had cabin fever and they, they had to get over it by going shopping and the, the services were largely closed. So they bought a lot of durable goods and now they've sort of satisfied all their demand for those kind of items. And now you're seeing that people want to go travel. They want to use services and uh, have, have fun. And uh, we are seeing that in the data, as a matter of fact, that there is sort of a pivot by the consumer from, from goods to, to services. So uh, that, that's fine and uh, makes, makes sense. And it's not exactly uh, anything to be particularly worried about. And I, as I said, I am watching the housing indicators. There's some forward uh, indicators uh, pending home sales, for example, which look very weak. I'm a big fan of using the regional business surveys. There's five of them that the Federal Reserve Banks uh, put together. And uh, they're leading indicators of the Purchasing Managers Index, uh, which comes out at the beginning of the month. So those are all things I watch. And they're all confirming that things are slowing down, but not in a free fall situation. With regards to the market, I've always said that it's uh, not that hard to be an investment strategist. All you have to do is forecast uh, two variables, earnings and uh, the P.E. ratio, or the valuation of those earnings. Getting those two variables right is, is, is the challenge, and I'm always challenged by it. But as an economist, I, I think I have some insights when I focus on earnings. I wish I had a psychology degree because that would probably help me a lot with the valuation multiples. Uh, but with regards to earnings, again, in a uh, soft landing, uh, slowdown scenario, I think earnings growth is going to slow, but I don't think it's necessarily going to turn negative. And I, I think it may kind of go sideways for a while which might uh, mean a sideways stock market for a while. But I think by next year, we'll be back uh, seeing uh, the economy growing, earnings growing, and the market does look ahead. Uh, the market did a really brilliant job of anticipating the uh, slowdown in the middle of this year. At the beginning of the year, the market has been down during the first half of the year anticipating trouble. Uh, but now I think it's looking into uh, 2023 already and recognizing that we're probably going to get through these problems uh, without any major calamity. And now all of a sudden, this rally that we've had since uh, June 16th uh, has really been led by a kind of reversal of valuation multiples. At the beginning of the year, I was arguing that uh, investors uh, are on Mars and uh, analysts are on Venus. They are on different planets. And the analysts uh, kept uh, kind of singing a happy tune and raising their earnings estimates for this year. And meanwhile, the analysts just couldn't buy it. And they were smashing valuation multiples from about 20 to 15. And that's really where the uh, decline in the market came from. And now we're seeing that uh, investors are saying, well, maybe the, invest the, the, the analysts were too optimistic, but uh, maybe we were too pessimistic about the outlook. And now we're seeing some rebound here in the valuation multiple. But Ed, it's always kind of like that. We take it too far in one direction. We're animals. We have animal spirits that sort of rule over us. So we get a little too pessimistic on the downside, a little too optimistic or way too optimistic on the upside. Nothing surprising about any of that, right? No, it's the old fear and greed. And we saw a tremendous amount of fear in the first half of the year. And the sentiment indicators did an awfully good job of uh, measuring that. Turned out to be, once again, so far, good contrary indicators. Look, uh, just because... Uh, it seems like we made an important low on June 16th. This doesn't come with a money-back guarantee. Uh, we live in a very uh, dynamic, fluid world, and things can uh, change pretty, pretty, pretty rapidly here. But we did discount a lot of potentially really, really bad news, and it turned out to be, so far, not as awful as feared. 
Yeah, we're right in the middle of earnings season. You mentioned it already. The results have been mixed, but maybe better than expected for some companies and sectors. But let's focus on that revenue per share, profits per share, and operating profits. These are three of the major organs inside companies' balance sheets. What's the prognosis, Dr. Yardini? Revenues per share have uh, been growing very rapidly, and uh, that's because um, inflation. I mean, nominal GDP and revenues are basically the same concept. And so as inflation has uh, picked up, so have uh, revenues. Uh, the remarkable thing is that companies have been able to uh, pretty easily pass through the, this inflation to their consumers. As a result, earnings have continued to grow and profit margins have actually held up surprisingly well. Now, as you said, it's a mixed picture. Retailers got stuck with uh, inventories that they didn't expect. They didn't apparently anticipate that consumers might have satisfied a lot of pent-up demand over the past couple of years. And now all of a sudden they have to discount, which by the way, is a healthy development in terms of getting inflation down. On the other hand, some of the technology names are displaying that uh, they do continue to do a pretty good job of generating um, uh, earnings. So I, I think we're looking in the second quarter, once the results are all in, at something like a 5 to 7% year-over-year increase in earnings per share. And um, I think that it'll continue to be sort of single-digit comparisons in the second half of the year. And then I think we'll probably see a low double digits, something like 10% to 15% next year. And so that's, uh, I think, fundamentally consistent with continuation of uh, the move higher that we've seen since June 16th. So what is nobody talking about as it relates to the health and direction of the U.S. stock market that you think deserves more attention? What is the overlooked key indicator that you think you need to pay attention to? I'm glad you asked that because we do tend to be too U.S. Uh, focused, too U.S. centric. And I think you really want to have a global perspective when you think about the, the, the stock market. And when you look around the world, you see that uh, it's a pretty messy situation around the world. China's got some uh, terrible problems. Uh, Europe's got some awful problems. And uh, now we're seeing that emerging markets are having unsettled uh, political situations because of the high cost of food and energy. And so uh, when global investors look for where to uh, put their money, it certainly looks like the US is a safe haven. And that explains why the dollar has been so strong. And that explains, I think, to an extent why the bond yield kind of got up to three and a half percent. And suddenly, I think foreigners were important buyers of bonds in the U.S., helping to bring the bond yield down, which they, they haven't been really buying equities, but by bringing bond yields back down, that's helped on the valuation multiple side. But I think increasingly, you're going to find that global investors, and that includes American investors who diversify on a global basis, are going to conclude uh, that there is no alternative country uh, to overweight other than the U.S. And so there is no alternative country stands for TINAC, T-I-N-A-C, not to be confused with TINA, which is a kind of a close cousin uh, that, you know, there is no alternative to stocks. But I think on a global basis, the U.S. looks like the place to overweight. You're a movie buff, Dr. Yardini, and a pretty avid movie reviewer. You have a great list of movie reviews going back many years on your site. Let's talk about business and finance movies. We love those here at Investopedia. I have to know your top five. Can you give us your top finance and movie picks of your lifetime? Yeah, but they're not the movie picks per se. They're a, a series on uh, a cable, uh, which I think uh, have been very, very well done recently. So one of my favorites is The Titans That Built America about people like Henry Ford and Rockefeller. And uh, I know that uh, some people uh, uh, have a negative view of these as sort of robber barons. What the series makes you appreciate is the extent to which 
these entrepreneurs uh, improve the standard of living of all their customers by providing their customers with better goods and services at lower prices. So uh, I think it's really worthwhile. Uh, inventing uh, Anna is about uh, Anna Sorkin, who was a pretty good uh, scam artist. She went to, to jail for her, her scams, but uh, you can kind of get an idea of uh, how cons sometimes work in uh, con artists' work and uh, attracting funds. Speaking of, uh, of that, another con artist uh, movie is the, the Dropout, which is a series about Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. And uh, you know she claimed she had this amazing technology with one drop of blood, she could tell everything about you and it turned out to be just a big scam. And that's extremely well done. I really like Super Pumped, uh, the battle for Uber. Uh, I actually worked with Bill Gurley, who was a the venture capitalist uh, who really made that company, uh, financed that company, and uh, the trials and tribulations that he had to go through to uh, uh, bring it to uh, to the market are fascinating. And then again, in the same line, uh, you can almost see this as a quintuple uh, feature: is uh, we crashed about uh, WeWorks. So uh, those uh, those will keep you busy for a long time because uh, most of them are uh, several uh, one-hour shows. I like these because. Uh, it kind of mixes capitalism with uh, corruption, and you, you get to you get to see human nature really, really well. Well, I know somewhere in your in the recesses of your mind, you're probably working on a script or a pilot or a a movie because I know you're such a big fan of the screen. So thank you for those picks. We're going to link to those in the show notes, and we're big fans of all of those as well. Uh, Ed, you know we're a site built on our financial terms and our definitions. You are a student and teacher of the game. What's your favorite investing term or indicator that you love to use in your research or teach people about? What's the one that's really close to your heart? Well, it's the one that I invented back in the early 80s, bond vigilantes, uh, the idea being that the Federal Reserve certainly has a tremendous influence on the economy, but uh, we shouldn't underestimate the extent to which the financial markets, particularly the bond markets, uh, can also ha- have, have an influence. And uh, sure enough, when the Fed uh, pivoted from uh, being extremely dovish for many years to uh, being hawkish at the beginning of the year, even uh, before the Fed really started to aggressively raise interest rates, the bond vigilantes figured it out and kind of jumped ahead of the, the line and uh, pushed uh, interest rates up dramatically, as, again, particularly in the mortgage market, which has slowed the economy down and is having an impact. You know, we've seen the bond vigilantes active in uh, Europe in the past when those Greek bond yields went up to 40%. They were clearly uh, screaming that something's just dead wrong with the way that country is being run and things changed and uh, we, those bond yields uh, came down. They're, they're, their previous heyday was really in the uh, 80s and early 90s. In the early 90s, the Clinton administration basically uh, recognized that there was limits to what they could do with fiscal policy because the bond vigilantes were watching what they were up to. So that's that's a phrase I kind of like to raise, especially when it's becoming relevant like today. Yeah, and it is yours and yours alone. And we'll make sure that if we don't have it on Investopedia, it will be there very soon with links to you Dr. Yardini, Dr. Ed Yardini, the founder, president, and chief investment officer at Yardini Research. Thanks so much for joining The Express. It's a real honor to have you. Thank you, Tom. My pleasure. 
It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from the good people over at Wingstop. That's right, Wingstop, that American multinational chain of aviation-themed restaurants specializing in chicken wings. The company founded in 1994 in Garland, Texas, and began offering franchises in 1997. And Wingstop CEO said in an earnings call last week that the company's benefiting from a meaningful deflation in bone wings. That's right, prices are falling for chicken wings. Well, what is deflation? Well, according to my favorite website, deflation is the general decline of the price level of goods and services that is usually associated with a contraction in the supply of money and credit, but prices can also fall due to increased productivity and technological improvements. But in the case of chicken wings, there may be something foul going on in the coop. I'll say, what's the big idea chasing my world? Take it easy, Foghorn. Take it easy. I'll explain. Last week, the U.S. Department of Agriculture actually raised its wholesale poultry price estimate to a gain of between 26 and 29 percent, up from a prior forecast of between 20 and 23 percent. The increased forecast suggests chicken prices may be poised to continue to rise in the back half of the year. But then, Pilgrim Pride, the nation's largest poultry producer, said prices of chicken breasts, tenders, and leg quarters are trending higher than other recent years, but wing prices have slumped. That may be due to some of the cost-cutting measures restaurant companies like Wingstop took earlier this year. As wing prices soared, the companies took wings off the menu and swapped in boneless wings, which are actually made from chicken breast meat. Prices got so high for chicken wings that Wingstop actually opened a new chain of restaurants called Stop this year. Bottom line, deflation means falling prices, but chicken wings may not be the canary in the coal mine that we've been looking for. We're going to let Paul Volcker take us out this week. Remember, Volcker was the chairman of the Federal Reserve from 1979 to 1987 when the U.S. economy was battling rampant inflation that topped out at 14.8% in the early 1980s. Here's Volcker being interviewed by our pal Ray Dahlia, who's been a guest on The Express back in February of 2019. Volker would later pass away in December of 2019, but here he is in conversation with Dalio, talking about how he had to initiate the most aggressive rate hiking campaign in the history of the country in order to bring down inflation. I saw no other way to approach this other than kind of a bulldog biting at it straight out. And I got plenty worried in 82 when we did begin getting unemployment and the damn inflation rate wasn't coming down and the money supply wasn't coming down the way we wanted, but I felt we were stuck. We, we couldn't back off. All the effort we were making would be for naught. Fortunately, by the summer of 82, things, the money supply came down, inflation rate became coming down. We had a recession, but by the end of the year, it looked like the recession could be over, or at least stop getting worse. And it, it ended pretty quickly. Even Fed chairs get nervous. Special thanks to Ed Yardini for joining The Express this week and to all of you for joining us once again. We'll post the transcript to that interview and to all the reports we cite in the show notes wherever you listen to this podcast and on investopedia.com slash The Express Podcast. Buckle up this week. It's going to be a bumpy one. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line.